what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everyone, everyone for sharing this and telling people about it and listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, with me today is Peep Van Heuven. She is the policy director for Bicycle Colorado, cyclocross teammate, longtime friend. And uh, thank you for uh, agreeing to do this. We've been talking about it for a while and, and welcome. So thank you. Absolutely. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Great. So what do you do? This is going to be kind of a different conversation because there's obviously, um, I wouldn't say like a vested interest, but you have a mission and I'm passionate about bicycles and riding and the impact in several different ways. So with that, what do you do? Yeah, that's a good question. I get that sometimes, most often from family members at Thanksgiving. We say, what does a bicycle advocate do all day? (laughs) Um, I think really bike advocacy, like any effort to create culture change, um, is, is about supporting good ideas and about working on a, on a local level, um, to help your local officials and the people in your communities change their behaviors, um, change the policies and the way that things are funded in such a way that everybody benefits. Um, so for me, um, the solution that makes my community better is when more people are biking. Um, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, in the next 45 minutes. But, um, you know, biking is um, it's fun, first of all. Um, it gives me joy personally. But it is, a, um, it is a societal solution to so many of the problems that we know we are experiencing right now in, in modern day. So, um you know, we have health issues as a community. We have individual health issues because of the lifestyles we lead. We have um, environmental impacts that we know affect us and our neighbors, whether that's, you know, the air quality and what we're breathing um, uh, to just um, the sort of the, the quality of life experiences that we have, interacting with the ways in which people get around um, uh and right down to um, opportunities for our kids. Um, so I'll throw one statistic at you right away. Um, and this shocks everybody. Will when, this be on the quiz? This will be on the quiz. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So in 1969, Matt, what percent <laughs> of kids biked and walked to school? Venture, I guess. Uh, I, would, I, I would say it's probably north of 50%. Right around. Not quite. I think it was okay. 47. So okay. yes. Now, um, what is the percentage of kids that bike and walk to school? Two. Okay, better than that, but still pretty shitty. So 13%. So um, what is that? 70s, 80s, 90s, 30 years, right? Um, Am I missing a decade? Um, But it's a massive drop. So we see 35% less biking and walking to school. That's a tragedy. Yeah. um, That kids today and their parents don't feel safe walking and biking to school. So that'd be one impact I'd really like to be a part of changing. Well, um, going back to what you said about the bike, and I've got a philosophy that if everybody rode a bike for a little bit, you don't have to be all kitted out in the the spandex weasel squeezers. You could just go on a, you could just go on a, on a cruiser ride. So if everybody rode a bike, if everybody looked at the stars and if everybody just went for a walk in nature, I think a lot of this stuff would just kind of 
not melt away, but be put into a proper perspective because people felt better. And there's been, you know, at critical times in my life where the only thing that made me feel better was thinking about a ride, being on a ride. And then at the end of it, like, oh, I went on a ride. And that made my hour better in the midst of some, you know, shitty circumstances. So. Well, you're preaching to the choir, obviously here, but um, yeah, I mean, the bike makes you connected to your community in so many different ways. So whether that's um, I bike to work or I'm going out for a recreational ride or I'm going um, on a ride um, or a walk with my family to the park, um, that's what gets you connected to people. It's it's what gets you connected to your local business and your neighbors. Um, you smell the flowers, you hear the sounds of the city around you. Um, you smile, you smile, um, you know, the, the stuff doesn't pass you by. You're, you're, um, right there and you're in tune with yourself and with the community around you. And when we are all in, you know, cars all the time, um, that doesn't happen. Um, and I think it makes people snarly sometimes. So there's, so there's definitely a, um, quality of life advantage to finding ways to bike a little more. Um, or even if you're not going to be the person who bikes a little more, finding ways to help um, make it easier for the people in your community to bike uh, because we all benefit. I'm out in suburbia right now and right by an elementary school. And I get like with kindergartners, little kids. Okay. I kind of understand that, but everybody that is at this elementary school is within probably half a mile that goes there. And there's so many cars that they have crossing guards and everything. And there's also a uh, transportation issue because there's a bridge over like a dry creek. And on one side, there's a sidewalk. And on the other side, there's no sidewalk. And people cut through the grass. And then so you're forced to cross the street, right? And so that kid could stay on their side of the neighborhood all the way to where the crossing guard is. I get the cars. Not everybody's going to ride their bike or walk. But that simple little bit of literally a hundred yards of concrete would have a massive impact on people's everyday experience. Exactly. Of their everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a painted bike lane. I get that, but I would, the last thing I would want would be a fourth grader on a bike riding on the oncoming side of traffic. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, in, in parks and recreation circles, they talk about social trails. Um, and social trails aren't the greatest thing sometimes if you want to maintain your current trails. But actually, social trails are something that um, trail planners really need to pay oh, attention yeah. I love to. love that term. I want to talk about that. Because um, it's an indication of where the people want to go. And so what trail planners really need to be looking at is if, if you're seeing a network of social trails developed, well, then whatever trail you have put in there uh, that you're forcing people to use is not meeting the needs of the where the people want to go. Um, and it's the same thing with our street infrastructure. So traffic engineers using their traffic manuals and their street design guidelines um, from back when we uh, designed the national highway system and before have been very focused on how do we move people in cars faster and more expeditiously? Um, and that, that entire thought process is permeated down to the local level. And it's why we have the street system that we have today, which is really completely inconvenient for anything other than moving people in cars quickly the way they want to go. And so it creates the barriers, um, just like the one that you described, that make it 
super inconvenient for people to want to walk and bike, also really, really dangerous. And we, we have a huge safety problem in Colorado and also in Denver. Um, I think it's 600 um, traffic fatalities a year average across the state. And a predominant percentage of those are people walking and biking because the infrastructure is not safe. And same thing in Denver. And pay attention now, all these statistics will be on the quiz. So in Denver, that is an average of more than a person every two weeks. So it's kind of stunning that we, our street infrastructure in Denver kills a person on average every two weeks. Um, that is a statistic that would be completely unacceptable if we were talking about other societal um, threats like a bad batch of romaine lettuce um, mm -hmm. or the extreme response we're seeing to coronavirus right now. And you look at how everybody is galvanizing around this major public health issue. Well, we have a public health issue on our streets right now because of how our streets are designed. And we could be making changes as quickly and as effectively as, as when we galvanize around these other issues. So that's what advocates are here in the walking and bike advocacy community to really just keep hammering on um, because we know what the benefits are. And um, we just like to get there a lot quicker. I think the individual random fatality doesn't have the same weight that something that like a, a mass event does. And I heard this on another podcast where somebody was talking about the invention of the automobile. And it's like, I've got this idea, but it's going to kill 60,000 people a year. <laughs> you know, like, and he was asking this leading question and I'm not anti-car. You're not anti-car. I drove here in a, in a vehicle. Right. But I walked three blocks to get down here to see you. Yeah. And um, I'm going to tell the story, then I'm going to shut up because I don't like talking on this podcast. But you talk about the, the traffic fatalities. I used to work in the tech center at Orchard and I-25. And I was tucked back kind of closer to Fiddler's Green. And I would walk to the landmark across Orchard to go to lunch sometimes. And I would cut, I would not get anywhere near the crosswalk because... I, the first time I did, I waited for the light and I got the white walk signal and then somebody basically almost blew through the right turn. So I would go half a block up where I would wait for the light coming from my left to be red and I'd walk to the median and I'd wait for the other light to be red. And in my mind, I will argue to the death with a traffic engineer that I was way safer doing that in the middle of nowhere than walking across at the crosswalk. I think... If your perception is that it's safer, then that is how the traffic engineers need to begin to design. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, going to be a 50-year battle, but I'm right there with you. <laughs> All right. So I'm done talking. So back to you. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. Um, you brought up car deaths. Um, so interesting. Cars are getting safer. Like, mm -hmm. um, So actually, the statistics for the people driving cars generally are getting safer, but what isn't is... Um, statistics for vulnerable users, so people walking and biking. Um, and I think the battle that's going on on our streets right now is really about um, sort of prioritization. Um, and I'm going to use two words, balance and prioritization. So there's this notion that um, we need cars. Um, we need to get around in them for various reasons. If you um, have to go to work via car, you're going to use a car. Um, you know, if you have to drop three kids off at school, you're, you're probably going to be using a car. 
Um, but there's a default, um, which is that, you know, 100% to maybe, you know, 95% of the street space should be for car vehicle traffic. And I think the shift that we need to see in the transportation world is that um, it's 50% vehicle and 50% other micromobility, um, uh, bicycles, the next thing that comes along that scooters are now, um, in order to continue to have livable spaces in cities because we're out of space so we can't just keep adding cars. Um, when you talk to uh, elected leaders and uh, anyone at a public meeting, um, that's a sort of sometimes a, seems like a revolutionary concept or an impossible concept. Um, but I think it's absolutely what's going to be necessary um, as we continue to experience population growth and so on. And, and the term they'll use a lot is balance. Oh, we need, we need to find a balance. Um, and this is where I think advocates really need to push and say it's not about balance because the transportation system is so out of balance right now that it has to be about the prioritization right now of anything other than vehicle traffic. Um, so that's, I'll take my advocacy hat off now, but that's, that's, that's really what this the, is your time. You can <laughs> advocate as long as you want. I'm loving it. Yeah. That's really what the game is about. And, um, it's in kind of three areas. One is trying to find ways to get people to grab this notion and, um, uh, uh, individually start to own some of this. So there's, here's another statistic for our quiz. Um, the average car trip in a city is a distance of blank. It's in miles. Um, I'd say three miles or less. Okay, very good. Two miles or less. Um, so think about what would uh, where you live look like if any time somebody was taking a trip of two miles or less, they um, hopped on a bike or they just walked and they didn't get in a car. Can you imagine how just mind-blowingly uh, different our streets would feel. Um, that That is the result that we could have if enough people just individually decided to make some behavior change. Mm -hmm. As simple as thinking about, hey, if it's two miles or less, I'm going to go for the handlebars and not for the car keys. Um, so it's not about changing everybody's behavior. It's just about changing enough of those behaviors and having enough people do it that we can make a difference. And we're going to see... Maybe some opportunities for people to have those aha moments um, through, you know, weird circumstances like the one we're experiencing right now with coronavirus. So we were talking about this before you turned the mic on. But um, as people self-isolate, they're going to stop moving around as much. And worldwide, air, air emissions are going to improve um, because we're going to have so fewer people out there and moving around. And it is going to be... Um, I think it's going to be one of the, the good outcomes of what is a, a bad situation right now from a public health perspective, because you can talk about it and you can even draw it on paper and you can do math and try and convince people that way. But um, at the end of this, three months from now, when we say there was self-isolation in these different countries and worldwide air quality improved by X, it's irrefutable. Um, that we know that if I people hope. change their behavior, <laughs> that we're going to have this result. Um, I, we are going to see that. I think it's already happening in China. Um, so um, that's that's sort of the behavior change piece of the work. And the other piece of the work in advocacy, and you know, if you look up advocacy in the dictionary, it sounds like a really scary word. And when, when I introduce myself at meetings sometimes and you say you're a bike advocate, people look at you funny, like, like you're an activist. You're going to... Um, 
you know, tie yourself in chains and like whip your clothes <laughs> off right there, or do something strange and inappropriate. Um, advocacy is really just, uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, the definition is to support, like to support an mm. idea. Um, and um, so, so segue there, but the other two pieces of bike advocacy specifically, aside from trying to get people to think about behavior change is just working really hard on street design change and policy change that gets people to change their behavior. So street design is, is sort of the, the home run, if you will, because if we could change what all the streets are like, we could people would change how they use them. If you design narrower streets, if you didn't have a bunch of three-lane one-ways, um, if you didn't create sort of straight speedways, if you reallocated the street space for only 50% vehicles, people adjust to that. Um, if you remove parking, um, and then policy, same thing. If you make parking very expensive, if you create congestion mitigation policy, um, if you drop speed limits, um, there's a variety of lots of different policy tools that you can use that will get people and employers and everyone to change behavior as well. I'm a big fan of roundabouts. <clears throat> you yeah. talk about the, the change in traffic design. I mm -hmm. spent 10 days in Belgium last year and came back and I drove most of the time over there with two buddies, with Cole and, and Dash, and could not figure out why when I got back to Colorado, I was so frustrated going 1.2 miles between my house and the kid's house. It's like, why am I so agitated? And like, I'm sitting at a light and there's no cars coming by. And it's like this distance would be over in a flash if there was a roundabout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think roundabouts work. Um, there's no question about it. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, and this is sort of related to the policy notion of safety stop. So I'll get to that in a second. But um, traffic often flows better when there aren't traffic lights. So when it's um, four-way stop, everybody figures out who got there first and takes turns. And people are calm about it. As soon as you throw in a traffic light, people start trying to beat the system and game the system. And We're Americans. Run, We're competitive. Run through late and <laughs> chaos. Um, and I remember a guy named Jerry, um, who worked at the city of Denver in the sustainability office, talking about this. He said the traffic light um, on his route back to his house was out for like three days. And it was the... Um, it was the best traffic flow in that area that he'd experienced, just because people are... Um, you know, people are acting predictably and at, at a little bit of a slower pace, it actually goes a little bit more smoothly. So the same thing happens at a roundabout. You have to figure out how to navigate. Um, and there, there aren't these big speed differentials. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I experienced it myself. When I bike to work, I take the 16th Avenue and there's something that's designed there called the Green Wave, which basically in the morning commute hours, I think it's seven to nine. Um, the lights are timed so that if you're biking at 13 miles an hour, you're going to hit every green. So, oh, if you, wow. so if you don't bike too fast, it's the best experience ever. And if you're pushing it and being a jerk on your bike, trying to go too fast, you're going to have to stop at the lights. But the same thing's happening to the drivers, right? So everybody ends up going the same speed. It's a reasonable slow speed. Um, nobody's gunning it. Everybody gets into downtown smoothly. I would love it if we had 10 green waves going into downtown Denver in the morning. <laughs> I've been, you know, on Jordan Road and Parker going 30 miles an hour when it's 
40 mile an hour limit because I can look up ahead and I see that lights turning red. And so I just kind of coast mm-hmm. a little bit and I've had people just blow past me on the left and the right, like so pissed off and they get to the light and they're stopped. <laughs> <laughs> like when are people going to learn? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Speeding. It, it's uh, it's illogical. And yet um, there are so many people who are just in that big rush. Yeah. And this is not a roundabout podcast episode but like i just look at we can make it one (laughs) no no (laughs) but like it it, like as a recovering engineer like i see that it it accommodates the difference in the flow it's cheaper it never goes out when there's a, a power outage you don't have to spend money to put up a traffic light and it accommodates the flux and so it handles midnight and it handles noon with better efficiency mm-hmm. so that's enough about traffic let's okay, talk we, about we, we solve roundabouts that's good yeah excellent yeah. <laughs> um so what are some of the wins i know because i've been seeing on both the the facebook page your personal page and um things you know what are some of the the major accomplishments that have happened the past um couple of years since you've been involved and how long have you been here by the way uh, you would ask that, um, somewhere between four and five years. I don't remember. Okay. Um, yeah. So before, um, before this job, I was at bike Denver. So bike, bike Denver was the, um, local bike advocacy group. Um, now my role at bicycle Colorado is policy director and it's really been two things. We have a focus on Denver. Um, and that's because our board, five years ago before I was hired, said, if we're going to make Colorado one of the most bike-friendly states in uh, the country, then our capital city has to be the leader and has to um, have the best of the best and be that shining example. And it was really the opposite of that, um, certainly five years ago. Um, And I think we're catching up, but we're not done. Um, So there are other cities in Colorado that were doing a much better job in terms of bike mode share, bike infrastructure, including Boulder and Fort Collins. Um, but also, you know, cities that Colorado could look to outside its borders, so Minneapolis and Seattle and so on and so forth. Um, so there's been a focus on getting Denver to catch up and then lead the way. And then we also work on state changes. So at the state legislature, trying to get good bills through that are just good for road safety generally, but biking in particular, um, and behavior change through our education program and other um, methods. So I would say the big wins... Um, And I'm going to start with sort of the culture change, because I think rather than um, take an approach of we're going to fight this bike lane by bike lane, we're really trying to figure out what are the big levers we can pull that that make everything else change downstream. Right. Um, So what I have noticed in the past 10 years that I've been doing this is that in the beginning, when I would go to city meetings in particular, I, I always was in the position where I had to be the one to figure out how to insert bikes into the conversation and say, what about bikes? Um, and after the Denver started bike sharing, um, and that was a city commitment to help launch Denver bike sharing, the conversation changed, I think really dramatically. It became kind of culturally cool if you were one of those people riding a bike. Um, and, and at that point, then if you were in a city meeting, um, the conversation shifted to the city staffer would be the one saying, wait a minute, what about bikes? And all I had to do was actually go to the meeting and sit there, and then they would remember there was a bike advocate there, and then they would bring it up and figure out what is the solution. Um, 
And now I think what we're learning is that whether we're invited to the meeting or not, they're going to talk about bikes and they're going to look to see if they can push the agenda a little bit. So I've really have seen the municipal culture change. Like city council is another example. Um, five years ago, the question would be which of the city council members are bike friendly. And now the question is how far are each of the city council members willing to get out there on bikes, right? Because it would be politically um, inopportune of them to come out anti-bike at this point. There's clearly a lot of, of interest in this. We just helped... Um, produce a poll with our partners at the Denver Streets Partnership that show that 80% of Denver voters want to see the Denver Moves bike plan built out and to the point that they're still saying yes at 66% if that bike lane takes away parking in front of their own house. Um, so we know that the the public will is there and I think the political will is starting to follow. Um, so that was a very long, very long piece, so I'll make the next two shorter. Um, on the state level, um, big wins. Um, we had a nice win with Safety Stop, making that a local opt-in. I think that is going to pave the way for a final passage of Safety Stop sometime in the future. And what is that exactly? I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, and um, this year I'm really excited about the bike lane bill, which is about to go to the governor's desk. Um, it establishes in Colorado law for the first time that a bike lane is for the exclusive use of bicyclists or other people authorized to be in the bike lane. It, it basically says... If you fail to yield to a bike in a bike lane, you um, have violated the right of way and you are going to get a $70 ticket. Hmm. But it does more than that um, because by defining that, um, it, it also basically says you can't block a bike lane. It means that anywhere you block a bike lane in the state, you deserve a $70 ticket. So um, I think that's going to do a lot to help build public awareness, get law enforcement better at identifying that we have the right of the way in the bike lane and then also um, sort of upping the enforcement game. Um, so I'll point to those two things. And then also we passed a vulnerable user law last year, which established in Colorado law for the first time that if you're outside a vehicle and you're hit um, and it causes serious bodily injury, that um, that should result in 12 points on the license, which is basically a license suspension. In other words, if you're a motorist, and you hit a bicyclist or a pedestrian or a peace officer or a construction worker um, and you kill them or you seriously injure them, you're going to have a, a suspended license. You lose your privilege to drive. So that, that was key. On the city level, we got a lot of money into the GO Bond two years ago, $118 million for bike ped projects. Um, the mayor has stepped down with his mobility action plan and um, they hired a new and much more aggressive um director of transportation in Ulysses Cleckley, and he's reorganized his department and stepped out kind of strong on Vision Zero. And they're now working on new street design guidelines, which I think is is very significant. So, Excellent. So you asked about Idaho Stop, I think. Um, oh, the safety, safety stop. Safety stop, yeah. yeah. So, so Idaho stops a safety stop in Idaho 35 years ago. They um, changed traffic law to say that uh, if you're on a bike, um, you can treat a stop sign like it's a yield sign if there's no nobody, if there's no oncoming traffic, basically, if you have the right of way because no one's there. And you can treat a, a stop light like a stop sign. So um, for 35 years in Idaho, if you're a bicyclist and you come up to a stop sign and there's no one there, you can roll through. If there is someone coming, you have to stop like normal. Um, and at a stoplight, same thing, you can continue your momentum if you slow down, you look both ways, 
uh, stop look both ways, excuse me, and there's no one coming, you can proceed through. So that helps with traffic flow, gets the bikes out of the way before the light turns green and everybody wants to go at the intersection. That's where most of the conflicts occur. And what we did in Colorado law was say, um, local municipalities can adopt this different type of traffic law. So you, you have to opt into it. Your city has to say, we're going to adopt Colorado safety stop. Um, but you can have separate laws for bikes approaching a stop sign and a stoplight. Um, I would actually like this to be a statewide law. I think it is sensible. It is counterintuitive to a lot of people. You know, they will say they'll go back to the days of vehicular cycling when it was like a bike should be exactly like a car. <laughs> um, well, a bike shouldn't be exactly like a car. It's not a car. <laughs> we use bikes differently. Um and all um, a safety stop law is doing is saying that um, the reasonable thing and the safest thing for a person on a bike to do is to only go when the coast is clear, but to go ahead and go ahead of cars if you're the one there first, because you don't want everybody starting at the same time at the intersection. Right. It basically allows the bike to clear through before the rest of traffic arrives. And if we did that uniformly across the state, that would actually be much simpler to understand and would cause a lot less congestion in intersections. Well, and so much of this is the, I guess, perception or the marketing or the phrasing of it, right? And so when you're talking about the Idaho stop, it's not to allow cyclists to blow through you know, stop signs and stoplights without touching the brakes. That's not the intent. Yeah, you'd still get a ticket for that. Yeah. But I loved your phrasing of getting the bike out of the way, getting the cyclists out of the way. I did that last Thursday. I was coming back from a road ride and I crossed eight lanes of, and I can't believe in a, in a subdivision there's an eight lane road, but I think there is because it's turn lane. It's either six or it's a six lane. Mm-hmm. Rolled up to the light and I had a choice. I could have pushed the button, which would have stopped the cross traffic, or I could do the safety stop, the Idaho stop, look, and it's like, I'm not running the stoplight. I'm getting out of your way. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of how you look at it and how you describe it. Mm-hmm. And as you've gone through these wins and these things you're talking about, you're not trying to ban cars from Denver. You're not trying to make people ride a bike all year or every day all year. You're looking out for the, I think, the best possible human experience being in the city yep. with the bicycle as a tool and a methodology for that. You're hired. That was beautiful. <laughs> I'm really good at telling people yeah. what to do. <laughs> yes. It's, yes, it's more of that. It's all the marketing. It's all how you say All right, it. there you go. <clears throat> yeah, good. so you, yeah, and going back to something you said along uh, at the start of this, you're not chaining yourself to things and setting things on fire. You're just like very practical and logical and like, Let's just make it safer, and here's one way that we can easily do it. Yeah. So uh, safety stop is going to be a tough one for police that like rules, and it's simpler for them that when the light turns green, everything goes. And the, the name of the game from an advocacy strategy perspective, if you want to propose this in your community, is that you have to get your chief city decision maker on board, so that's your mayor or it is the president of your city council, and you're going to have to get your police chief on board. If, if, if you can get those people either to yes or at least to neutral, um, then you can pass a policy like that. And the joy of the policy is, despite everybody's freak out that this is changed, that they just can't understand, it's totally cost neutral. 
It's 100% cost neutral. Um, and it is, it is a way to increase biking in the community and also create safer conditions and less confusing conditions. Cause like 50% of the bicyclists will roll through if they think it's safe. Cause it, it is like, they're making a choice to go, not because they're jerks, but because it feels safer. Um, and 50% of the people are following the law like they were taught. And so it, it creates this awkward social dance of like, are you going? Am I going? Are you going? <laughs> it's there's something called an illegal courtesy, which you can see sometimes when everybody comes Ooh, I like that. to a four lane stop. So, and this is where the driver's really nice to the bicyclist. So you both arrive at the same time. Um, you know, they're coming from the side and you're coming from the front. So you start slowing down because they're the bigger thing, right? You better pay attention. And then they wave at you to go through. Maybe maybe they're getting there first, but they wait for you and they're waving you through. It's really the illegal courtesy. Um, it's better, theoretically, in that place to stop and to have them go through, not let them give you a pass. Because otherwise you're in this awkward sort of back and sure. forth. You can't assume they're always going to see you and slow down. Um, but... It, I mean, you must have experienced that. You're like, I don't know if I should go or you should go or, and you're waving me on, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I did actually on that ride. Like I was stopped and I was, I was having kind of a rough day and I was upset about something, but <clears throat> I was stopped and I had a foot down and I wasn't even ready to go. But again, I'm not making the assumption that this random motorist knows what a cyclist is doing, but they were waving me to go and I wasn't leaving. I wasn't getting ready to ride. I was just fussing with my phone or something. And then I had to wave them on. So they were being nice. They were demonstrating that courtesy, but yeah, it's like just, yeah, it was that unspoken communication through the windshield, but they were like, yeah, mm -hmm. trying to help me, but ultimately they weren't. Yep. The funny things that people do. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so what are some of the um the biggest challenges i mean it sounds like the the mindset has shifted from the, the council meetings right so at least the awareness it's gone from awareness so i'm seeing this like a, a sales and marketing funnel so like the awareness mm. you've passed through the awareness phase to the um you know the 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 they're an interested buyer, so to speak. So you've transitioned their mindset. What are some of the continual challenges you're having for you know, these these bills and the the mission? Yeah. Um, so there's sort of like I think of this as a pincer movement. Like you have to impact from the top down and the bottom up at the same time, right? So you want to energize the grassroots. You want to get more people biking because that forces pressure on the system and then the system has to respond. And you also want the most effective political will possible coming from the highest level person you can influence to influence things top down. Um, and where things get stuck on political will, political will is definitely an issue like... Um, we have a mayor that stepped out in some very important ways, but and he knows how to ride a bike and he looks good in a bike helmet, which is more than I could say for some politicians. <laughs> um, but he's not really a bike guy, right? It's not where he lives and breathes. So he's he's going to go as, as as far as sort of he's comfortable. Um, so it's about helping the mayor and his advisors and also city council to a certain 
extent, figure out how to really dig in on this. And most of the time that's about figuring out what are the issues that they care about the most and how can you link biking to them and show them a win-win. Um, the biggest problem that I think I see right now in Denver is that um, city council as, so the, so the mayor's instructed the Department of, of Transportation to roll out 125 miles of bike lanes in the next couple of years. And I think they are ginned up and they are working really hard to get there and I'm um, feeling really great about the effort they're putting into it. Where we can run into trouble is where when they, they do their public engagement and they go to the local communities, especially if it's outside downtown Denver and it's places where people aren't used to having to have meetings about a new bike lane, that city council person um, really li listens to that that small but very agitated group that says, you know, bike lanes are a waste of taxpayer dollars or I don't want this bike lane in front of my house because where are my friends going to park or whatever it is. Um, and it's really helping um, educate as effectively and um, um, uh, I'm going to say in a, in a, in a, in a non-judgmental way as possible, if we can do that. We have to get people to begin to see that this benefits them too. So this is the heart of the work I think that Denver Bike Advocates are going to be doing for the next two years because we're going to we're going to see a lot of those meetings as they roll out so many new bike lanes in areas outside downtown. And so that's work with some of the council members outside downtown that aren't used to getting public pressure from a small but very vocal group of naysayers. Um, like the group on Marion Street that um, flat out came out and said what's most important to us is the beauty of our parkway, even when Alexis Bounds was killed by a truck um, on that same on that same stretch of road where they were suggesting a protected bike lane that, that would have saved her life. Right. Um, so that's, that's where that conversation is right now. The, the other piece, the energizing the grassroots, <clears throat> I see two um, really great opportunities coming up. Well, three, maybe one is the slow boat. The slow boat is just generational. Um, like if you look at the polls, you can see, where people are really accepting of new micromobility options and people maybe not even owning a car and it's this youth movement. Um, and we're about 10 years away from a serious generational shift um, where, where the, that naysayer group that the council members are running into, it is not going to be speaking up in that way anymore um, because the, the overall cu culture has shifted so much. And I, and I feel that wave coming and it almost feels to me like the gay rights movement that for you know, years and years, um, you know, as, as someone who, who grew up in a culture where you never came out publicly because you could lose your job um, as a gay person, that was not something that I was ever going to do as a young person. And I would never have imagined that in my lifetime I would see that um, gay marriage would be accepted nationwide. And yet that, all of that change happened in like a five-year period. And a lot of it was due to a generational shift in thinking because young people just didn't care if you were gay right. or you were not gay. Well, in the same way with with this focus on transportation and how we use our streets, I think the young generation sees things very differently. Um, so we're going to have a huge culture shift um, in about a decade. Uh, the other two opportunities there were sort of the grassroots are, we talk about this 60% interested but concerned group of folks that want to get out there. So as the city increases the infrastructure they put on the street, you're going to see more of that 60% actually get out there. And more riding begets more riding begets more riding. Like there's a 
mythical tipping point at about 10%, where when about 10% of the things on the street are bikes, one, drivers start to look out for bikes more, and so it's safer. And two, as a rider, you feel safer because there's more of you. So this becomes a bit like a snowball effect. Um, so just a little bit of infrastructure, like downtown Denver put down the Arapahoe and the Lawrence Street protected bike lanes. And two years later, the downtown Denver commuter survey showed a 3.5% jump in bike commuting. And I attribute it directly to those two pieces of infrastructure. Um, so the city's expediting how fast they're putting out bike lanes. That's going to lead to more riders and more riders leads to more riders. So we're going to get that. Um, and the third thing is e-bikes. Um, there is a massive e-bike wave coming and it is going to be awesome. Um, I, I ask around just anecdotally, you know, do you have an e-bike? Do you know someone who's got an e-bike? And everybody I know is saying yes. And two years ago, it was sort of an oddity if you had a connection to anybody with an e-bike. So e-bike sales, I think they're going, they're going just off the charts. Um, oh, it's the only healthy thing in the bike industry right now. Yeah. And um, it's getting seniors on bikes and it's moms who want to take their kids to school. Now suddenly you can get a little further and you can go to the grocery store and carry all that stuff back with you. Um, that could double the number of people who are out there biking. And they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like, they are. Like you get on them and you just instantly get this sort of wee <laughs> feeling. Completely. Um, so that's that. those are three things that tell me there's this big wave coming, and I think we're going to see it in the next 10 years. What's the story of Alexis? I think I may have heard this, or the, the accident oh, yeah. on Marion. So I, I know I may have seen it, but what was that story? Yeah, oh, it's um, a really tough one. Um, Alexis Bounds, um, mid-30s, mother of two, had just had her second child, um, who's I think maybe nine months old, went on her first bike ride, you know, post-second baby, middle of the day, like um, in the afternoon on Marion Parkway, which has a bike lane um, and is a really heavily traveled route between um, the Cherry Creek Trail and Wash Park, which is a popular place to bike. Oh, I think I know this. Yeah. Road. yeah. And a, a guy driving um, a dump truck um, for work um, went and just turned right in front of her in the bike lane and dragged her about 100 feet um, until people saw this and yelled at him to stop. Um, he was not focused on the road because I think, uh, according to his statements in court, he was paying attention to a GPS system. Um, there were already public meetings in place about a planned protected bike lane there that would have had physical protection. If that physical protection had existed on the parkway, he wouldn't have been able to make that sharp turn in front of her. Um, and there were neighbors in these two large residential townhomes um, right at the foot of that parkway that literally went on TV and said, what's most important here is the beauty of our historic parkway. And we don't want that protected bike lane. Um, and that was a um, seminal moment this summer. It was really galvanizing for the bike community. There was a big response to that. Um, we actually coordinated with the Denver Cruiser Ride, which does a great job organizing Wednesday night cruiser rides and did a kind of combined, they had their cruiser ride end at Marion at the spot where Alexis um, was killed and we organized a candlelight vigil and we had about 200 people in the street there that night, including her family. Um, there's a lot of news coverage about it. Um, and then there was a second meeting about the bike lane and I, I think um, Public Works, I'll give them a lot of credit. Uh, they did a very nice job designing something that sort of met the 
you know, aesthetic concerns of the neighbors, but also is a protected land that, you know, will protect people in the future there. But that was really, you know, a place where there was, you could just see the head-to-head collision of the folks who want no change and the folks who are saying we need these changes. And so it's a big part of the conversation about <clears throat> bike infrastructure and um, safety and the need for productive community conversations this past summer. Yeah, and as you've described that story in where I'm going with this is sort of the perceptions or misconceptions, right? So I have this perception of the people in the towers as these, you know, rich folks who whatever, right? And so they're talking this, again, very important in their world about the aesthetic of the bike lane, right? And I'm forming a judgment on them based on that. But you know, they also have a misconception on what a protected bike lane might look like. They might be thinking Jersey barricades from the highway that are going to go in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and all you got to do is put down the phone and turn off the social media and like go have a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine well, that. Right? Yeah, so this is where I actually I do credit um, the Department of Transportation for getting in there and being a part of that conversation and bringing everybody to the center. Um, and the goals, which were to create a protected bike lane, but to do it in a way that listened to neighborhood concerns. And I think the main thing they were worried about is that um, they didn't want to see a lot of the white bollards that um, were mm. used in the in the Washington Park plan that is near the Washington Park and saw those as ugly. And to be frank, actually, I think a lot of the bike advocacy community would agree with you. We would rather have cement and things that look pleasing than mm-hmm. the white bollards. So... The, that project's not going to have white pollards. That's a win for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Just reminds me of that um, riddle, like the difference between the conservationist and the developer. Ooh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> the developer wants to put a house in the woods. The conservationist already has a house in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. It just It's all your perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time for sure. And um, I see this as definitely like a part one. So I would like to continue this more. But um, where can people get involved? Where can people help? What can people do? Yeah, so two places I'll point to. Um, BicycleColorado.org is our website. It's a great place to go for information on our education programs. We have kind of a cool program coming out this summer called the Navigator Program. Um, this is for the people in your life that aren't biking yet, but are thinking about it. And it is, I'm going to call it Uber for bicyclists. Mm. Um, so it is grant funded, which means that for you it's free. Um, and what we do with the grant is we pay and train, um, bike navigators. Um, you can call and make an appointment and they will show up at your house or your work and bike navigate you on your, your, you'll ride your own bike from point A to point B. So basically they're teaching you your best route. You know, and there are other tips of the trade because what what we know, you may have forgotten this because you're now getting kind of long in the tooth, Matt, but um, <laughs> is, uh, you know, when you first start riding, it's... Nobody insults me on my own show. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's scary. There are all these barriers for first time <clears throat> riders. Like, yeah. what's the tire pressure supposed to be? And where? how do I adjust my saddle? And like, you don't have no idea how to plan a good bike route. And you, everybody learns that from someone. So somewhere in your life, you had a bike navigator. Um, and it's one-on-one a lot of the time. Um, 
so so we we want to actually do this um and we have people that will um within sort of city of denver boundaries um navigate you so you can find that under i think it's bicycle colorado initiatives on our website so check that out okay we have a really good e-newsletter so sign up for that you'll get it every two weeks it's um we'll tell you about all the breaking news in the state um and you should also check out the denver streets partnership.org um, so that's what our Denver effort has turned into is that four years ago, basically I brought together the bicycle and pedestrian advocacy groups. And we started talking about how to advocate together for things versus the pedestrian group advocating for their stuff and the bike group advocating for their stuff. And we expanded that over the past couple of years to include groups that care about active transportation and transit um, from different lenses, so like the health lens and environment and social justice and housing and so on. And so um, we created a coalition of, I think it's now nine nonprofit um, advocacy organizations that have experience with policy advocacy from like AARP and the American Heart Association, Colorado Public Interest Research Group to Walk Denver and Bicycle Colorado. Um, and we just recently finished a, a merger with Walk Denver, um, and their staff basically assumed the position of, of uh, the newly the new staff of the Denver Streets Partnership, and it exists under the umbrella of Bicycle Colorado. So essentially, our, our Denver effort is now a fully functioning and staffed um, four person staff multimodal transportation advocacy effort with their coalition of other nonprofit partners. Um, so they are going to be out there. Um, supporting pedestrian projects, bike projects, transit projects, safe streets efforts. And there are going to be a lot of different um, local ways to get involved that are going to be coming out through the Denver Streets Partnership. Um, I would also, if you're a bicyclist, I would follow the Denver Bike Lobby. They're on Facebook. Um, This is a volunteer-based organization. Um, And I'm a personal fan of YIMBY Denver. YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard. Mm. Um, They're about density and um, equitable housing policy and transportation equity. Wonderful. Is it time for the quiz? <clears throat> no, I have to go. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a quiz on series number two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Peep, this has been awesome. Thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. It's always a pleasure.